Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Some of you may know me from my career in the distilled spirits industry as the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana. An industry, as I see it, more than just a little influenced by the occult and the work of opening doors and capturing essences. Here, you'll see another side of what I do and how I'm influenced by such experiences. Here, myself and occasionally friends will share first-hand accounts, stories shared with us, for tea and news, interviews, and a healthy dose of history and speculation. Settle in for the ride and enjoy. Perhaps that movement you saw out of the corner of your eye was more than just a shadow. Perhaps that weight on your shoulder, a bit more than fatigue. I've lived my whole life like this. Perceptive of those things that might be viewed by the less aware amongst us as simple circumstances, magic thinking, or even make-believe. Anticipating with the many ups and downs of my own perception, I have anxiously awaited the more positive of those experiences, dreading those of a darker caliber. I believe from societal observation in recent years that others are becoming acutely aware of the currently scientifically unmeasurable world that surrounds us. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. Join us as we take a hard left into the heath and the heather. Join us as we call out into the void, as the veil frays at the edges, and recall, if you have ghosts, you have everything. Good evening or good morning, wherever you are, and welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, with your host, Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest. This week's episode was pretty special to me, so we had a very special guest by the name of Jeremy Elliott, the historian of Washington County. I don't actually remember exactly what his title is at the John Hay Stevens Museum, um, Depot, etc. This very unique community resource we have here in Washington County, Indiana, which serves as a genealogical library as well as a museum, as well as the Depot Train Museum, uh, which is all about the history of the railroad, the New Albany and Salem slash Monon Railroad traveling through Washington County, Indiana, as well as serving as the uh, John Hay birthplace. If you guys are ever in Washington County and you're not from here and you want to get an idea of where I came from uh, and how I grew up, this is a great place to figure it out. I've known Jeremy for about 10 years, and he is single-handedly one of the best historians that I know. Um, Literally, there's about three or four people that, you know, if I want to know something about history, depending on where that history is located and or what the topic is, Uh, He is in that group of people, one million percent. So it was super special to have him here at the house. And the poor guy, just like Bill Nicely, he's six plus feet tall, as I mentioned later on in the show. And I have him shoved over here in the corner next to my bed because we live in a tiny house and my studio is actually in our bedroom. So uh, I apologize, Jeremy, that we had you all kind of scrunched up over there in the corner, but we do the best we can with what we have. Anyways, this week, Jeremy's going to get into a couple of historical Washington County ghost stories. So he's going to give you the actual history behind why a ghost or a apparition may exist uh, in local legend. 
that is actually backed up by that history and by events that actually happened. But cooler than that, in my opinion, are the stories about Jeremy's house, where Jeremy actually lives, sort of in... Uh, overflow house uh, for the museum. It's an extension of the museum in many ways, hosting a lot of the artifacts that aren't normally on display. And Jeremy has had some crazy experiences in his home on a very regular and reoccurring basis, more than I actually knew that he had in the past because he revealed more in the show than he'd ever told me in the past regarding those events. So that was really special. I also wanted to kind of chime in here and tell you guys that uh, this has been a blast recording this podcast. I really enjoy it. I love getting the feedback. I love seeing you guys sharing this thing. We're getting quite a few listeners at this point in time, uh, which really excites me. And I want to encourage you guys to uh, check out thealchemistcabinet.com and go to the warehouse, which is our store. You'll find all of your One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute merchandise there, including the book I wrote about distillation. Uh, You're going to find all kinds of shirts and stuff like that we're working on now. You're going to find a couple of uh, DVDs related to my distilling career. And we are about to start adding, if you have ghosts, you have everything merchandise, including uh, mugs and shirts and a very cool, at least in my opinion, Oracle deck that Kim and I designed from uh, some photos that we had taken that have some deeper meanings to them and perhaps a very unique method of reading these particular kinds of cards. In the coming weeks, there's going to be some really cool episodes coming up. We've got Jack Begadu, the Hood Sommelier. We literally, we just had him on and recorded last night uh, with another guest, Christy Atkinson from Distillers Talk. And that episode is really going to be an introduce, uh, introduction to Jack Uh, And the culture that he comes from in Africa and some of the things that they believe and some of the things that he inherently knew growing up. But I'm going to be recording a second episode with him here very, very shortly, uh, which is going to delve a little deeper into some of the actual ghost experiences that Jack has had. And I'm very excited about that. I also have my friend Nate Cox coming on shortly. Nate was one of the very first people I worked with in the distilled spirits industry. And he's got a couple of very crazy stories Uh, related to his time in the military as well as a trip to Japan. Then on October 15th, we have the McNew episode coming out. The first of the two crossover Stephanie McNew episodes with a highly spirited podcast. Uh, These are a compilation of short stories between myself and Kim as well as Stephanie McNew. Um, And we are going to do two of those for the month of October, one on the 15th and one I believe we're either going to release, I think, on Halloween Yes, on Halloween, that's correct. And the second Jack Begadu episode will be on the Day of the Dead. That will be the last episode of Season 1 of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Um, There's some other cool stuff that's going to happen in between. I can't wait for you guys to hear some of the short stories that McNew and myself and my wife have shared. And I think that they are going to be incredibly popular. Anyways, as always, please find a nice relaxing place even if it's in your car driving to or from work tune out the rest of the world short of anything that might cause you harm and enjoy the episode i think that jeremy did a great job narrating these stories and really filling in the historical gaps with them and i think you're gonna love it as always guys reach out to me with any stories or suggestions that you have at bishopshomegrown at gmail.com love you and i'll catch you later
Hey Metalheads, I'm Mark and I host Metal Forge. Let me tell you about the show. The Metal Forge features the best underground metal from all over the world. We spend every week with a different artist with interviews, in-depth conversations, and most of all, the music. We also feature audience interactivity where you can submit your questions to the upcoming guests. New episodes are out every Friday at noon Eastern Time at MetalForgeRadio.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey guys, it's me again, Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest and the host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, as well as the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute and co-host of Distillers Talk, my other podcast with Christy Atkinson. So you may or may not be aware of this, but we have a brand new store where you can buy merchandise. It's the alchemistcabinet.com backslash the warehouse one. Or you can just go to thealchemistcabinet.com. We literally just got two new mug designs in, thermal stainless steel coffee mugs with a one piece at a time distilling institute logo on one of them and a if you have ghosts, you have everything logo on the other. We've got cool t-shirt designs coming. My book about the art of distillation I wrote a couple years back has just been republished as an autographed edition that you can buy on the website. You'll be able to buy hats, stickers, we're working on a, a cool oracle deck of cards similar to tarot, etc. It's all available at thealchemistcabinet.com at the store called The Warehouse One. All right, so welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, and uh, we have uh, brought in another guest into the tiny bedroom of doom, uh, and he's also like six foot something, I think, and shoved over here in the freaking corner where it's super uncomfortable, but uh, anyways, um, my buddy Jeremy Elliott's here from the Washington County Historical Society. He has some really cool uh, Washington County-related paranormal stories. And he also lives in, I'm not going to say the house is that weird. It's the things that are in the house that are that are kind of weird in some way, shape, form, or the other. Uh, and we'll get into all that, but I want Jeremy to introduce himself. I've known Jeremy now for about a decade or so, and uh, he's a good guy. He knows a ton about history, and I think you guys will enjoy this. So, yes, my name is Jeremy Elliott, and I am the executive director of the John Hay Center which is owned by the Washington County Historical Society. I've been at the John Hay Center since 2012, I believe. Um, so yeah, 10 years, Alan. Yep. Um, in the time that I've been there, I've um, come across a few paranormal stories and I brought two of the oldest stories that I've ever found with me today um, to share. And Alan's not wrong about my house. Um, I'm not as convinced that it's everything in my house because I stayed in my house to get it prepared for me to move into. And it was already 
It was already going on. It was on. already going on before <laughs> I ever moved anything into it. Well, and and we'll get we'll get to that later in the show. But the reason I say uh, the things in your house is like I always have that moment of like you know Jeremy has a potentially gently used coffin. I do <laughs> a couple actually. Right. I have one upstairs and one downstairs. <laughs> also have the old cooling table. Oh, I forgot about that because I was telling somebody from the about county your- asylum. I was telling somebody about your coffins the other day, and I forgot about the cooling table. Because when I mentioned the coffin, because I use that story sometimes, I'll tell people, like, yeah, I know a guy that's a historian, and he's got coffins in his house, yes, right? Yes, I do. One of them's potentially gently used. I didn't think about the cooling table, but that's almost more creepy in some ways. So, yeah. Um, just the number of people that pass across that. But, anyways, that, that out of the way, uh, I think that's a pretty good intro. Uh, one more thing, Jeremy. I, I'm going to ask you this because I haven't heard anything about it. Are you guys doing the walk again this year? Yes, we are. Um, it, tentatively, it's planned, Alan. Um, the Murder and Mayhem, it's a 2.0 version this year. Um, there's going to be some of the stories that we did last year mixed in with some new ones um, if I get the time to put it, to put the script together. But, but yes, it's um, October 14th and 15th, Friday and Saturday night on the Salem Public Square. Excellent. Yeah, that was you guys did a fantastic job with that last year. And uh, thank you. That should fall well for you guys too, because I think Salem Speedway is doing a haunted speedway walk October fifteenth. Are they? You might be able to. The speedway's haunted. I used to work there. Yeah, uh, Bill has got, and he was the first guest. And you can imagine Bill sitting over. Oh yeah, yeah, he's taller than me. (laughs) Like all hunched up. But uh, yeah, they're they're doing a speedway, and they've got a guy that lived there for several years, and. I guess has done a lot of the, the research on it cool. and all that stuff. So um, we're going to make it both of them. I heard that, though. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, all right, man, you can uh, you can start whenever you want to, brother. Okay, so as you're probably aware, Alan, and most people probably are, um, when the first white settlers arrived to southern Indiana, um, there was a, a tremendous population of Native Americans or American Indians that lived here. Um, in our county, in Washington County, um, there was quite a few Shawnee Indians that lived in the southwest corner of our county. And as legend has it, and this was this story was originally first told to me by Ben Weathers, if you remember Ben, who used to run the Weathers Funeral Home and was a, a lifetime member of the Historical Society. He, he told me this story, which had been passed down to him through some of the residents of Fredericksburg. And um, after I started doing some digging around at the museum, I found further evidence of that same story. And it was almost verbatim from what Ben Weathers had told me. But um, whenever the first white settlers first started arriving in the Fredericksburg area, um, there was a man whose last name was Lentham, and that's the only, the only thing we even know about him. But supposedly, after he got his land from the land office in Jeffersonville, he went, he went to the property, and up on top of the hill, there were a village of Shawnee that were living there. So he went up to the top of the hill and paid the chief of that tribe some undetermined amount of money um, to allow him to to start constructing a cabin on that property so as the years went along as you as you know alan um 
the Shawnee and, and a lot of the Indians in our area were really into horse racing. And they built a track in Fredericksburg, in the town of Fredericksburg. The Shawnee had it before it was Fredericksburg. The Shawnee had a track there. And a lot of the local Indians used to come around and race there. Well, it didn't take very long for the kids to get really into, the Indian children were really getting into racing horses. Now, the chief of the tribe that lived on this hill, which today, Alan, is Horner's Hill, right. Horner's Chapel, that area, um, the chief of the tribe had a daughter named Eva, and Eva was really adept at horse riding, and supposedly she frequently beat most of the young braves of her tribe in horse races. So sometime during the possibly the late 1790s, Eva and some of the some of the other kids from the Shawnee tribe that lived there were out racing horses. Well, whenever they got to the Buffalo Ford in Blue River, um, Eva drove her horse in full speed and hit the treetop of a of a dead tree that had sunk in the river and her horse reared back and threw her off and supposedly she got pinned under a rock and dr and drowned there okay so <clears throat> as tecumseh and the prophet um and started in 1806 started um trying to recruit indians to join the confederacy up in prophetstown up near lafayette in that area um at some point between 1807 and 1812 almost all the indians from washington county left and and most of them went up towards prophetstown some of the delaware went over to ohio but but by 1812 about all the indians were gone from washington county with the exception of possibly chief delaney um at any rate, as the, as the War of 1812 concluded in 1815, um, the following year, the Horner family moved to Fredericksburg, and they purchased that property off of this Lentham guy for 25 bucks. You know, you know, it's funny, Jeremy, I have to throw this in. So we obviously set up, if you have ghosts, you have everything not to be distilling related. But almost every episode... It ends Goes up back somehow to distilling. being distilling related because, you know, the Horners, and I'll let you get into all that, but I will say this. I don't know their distilling history. Oh, okay. All right. So, yeah, that was, uh, uh, who was the one that started that? It was, I know they had an inn and a tavern. Yep. Yep. And they were distillers as well. So okay. So, they, they bought that prop, or they had they had the distilling property. They bought the distillery from a, a relative of theirs, and his name is slipping my head right now, and any other time it would be right there. But Alexander Horner had a distillery there, too. Now, isn't it kind of funny where you're talking about this ghost story at? All right, so I now I just did a Bigfoot story about Cave River Valley. There's distilleries there. Yes. We're talking about Horner's Chapel, distillery there, right? I've done Bex Mill, had Judy Quinlan on, obviously a distillery yes, there. Yes, sir. These are areas, also Native Americans too, obviously, right? That's true, yeah. These are areas of high trauma in general, right? That's there a was good a point. lot of energy yes. in those places over the years yes. in Washington County. And not only with the distillery side of things, but I bet 90% of the stories we've done so far locally, there's been some sort of Native American connection as well huh. with the areas that those stories seem to come out of. So that's I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was kind of, kind of an interesting Yes, thing. sir. That's interesting.
the Horners moved to Fredericksburg and that's, you know, how it became Horner's Chapel and Horner's Hill and all of that. Um, Jacob Horner eventually opened up an inn and a tavern there and his brother John, his younger brother John lived upstairs. Now Jacob, I think, eventually became the postmaster of Fredericksburg. But about a year after they moved in, according to Horner family lore, the chief of the Shawnee tribe that lived on top of the hill came back to their house and knocked on the door. Now his name was Chief Fortos. And everywhere that I've looked, Alan, that's what he's referred to as. I'd say there's a Copperhead story in there. We somewhere. would have to assume <laughs> that it that it's for obvious reasons that he was called Chief Fortos. So it's John McFeeders that Horner bought the distillery oh. from. So sure, the uh, McFeeders. Uh, McFeeders and Mallet, who were later liquor dealers, yes, flat boats, all yes, that sir. stuff. But they were relatives as well. So and they're both buried right. there at the uh, cemetery in Fredericksburg. So Chief Fortos came back to the Horner house about 1817 and came knocking at the front door. Well, Jacob Horner went to the front door to see what it was that this Indian wanted. And um, he invite, actually invited, the Chief Fortos told him, you know, that he used to live on this land and he had, he had longed to come back to his, his beloved hunting ground. And um, Jacob actually invited him in. But Chief Fortos wouldn't come in the house until Jacob Horner came outside and smoked a peace pipe with him. So they went outside under a tree and smoked a peace pipe and, and conversed with one another. And then afterwards, he invited Chief Fortos in to stay for dinner. Well, Chief Fortos ended up staying at the Horner house for three years. He lived upstairs in the, in the bedroom that he shared with Jacob's younger brother, John. So during this time, Chief Fortos used to go out to the river and sit on this giant rock and cry and chant and sing prayers over his daughter, Eva, and the one that he lost in the river. And he had told the Horners about this story, about, about what had happened to his daughter. So Chief Fortos eventually um, was taken down to the Ohio River and was sent out west with, with a, a tremendous amount of the, of the Native Americans that were here in Indiana. In the 1820s, you know, the U.S. military made a forced migration of most of the Native Americans of Indiana and forced them to move out west. So Chief Fortos eventually ended up out in Oklahoma on a reservation. However, he continued to come back to Indiana, literally would walk here, would walk back to Indiana. That's a hell of a walk, man. That's you a aren't long, kidding. Yeah. You yeah. aren't kidding. You know, um, General Marston Clark, Allen from Salem, he always, there's some comments somewhere of his where he said it was no big deal to walk to Vincennes. Wow. <laughs> so I guess if people are walking to Oklahoma and back and, and, and you know, frequently the flatboaters would walk back from New Orleans. Yeah. So I guess Vincennes really isn't that really far. wasn't that bad, yeah. If you can imagine how long it would take you to do that. Well, and just to throw in on the on the idea of some of these things, whether it's a residual, let's say a residual haunting, like almost like a playback, like you're playing a tape back, okay, which 
and we're getting there. Or it's an active thing, right? It, all that stuff would have to have some kind of energy. And if you, not only the area of high trauma that is around Fredericksburg in general because of everything that would have happened there over yes, the years. Yes, sir. But if you're walking back from Oklahoma and you're putting that amount of energy into that and then you're coming there to literally spend days right. praying, chanting, wailing over your lost daughter, that's a lot of energy going into the environment there too. There is. That's true. Yes, sir. That would be true. So, Chief Fortos continued to come back to Indiana, and when he stopped, you know, that, that date's lost to history. However, through the years in Fredericksburg, there are all kinds of residents that lived there through the 1800s into the 1900s, all the way up until um, Ben Weathers told me that there was a woman named Laura Martin that told him a story that happened to her either in the 1940s or 1950s she was out on her porch on an early autumn morning shaking rugs and it was before the sun come up and it was foggy around particularly around the river and she said that <clears throat> she was completely frozen in bewilderment when something caught her eye and she looked up and there was an indian girl on the opposite side of the river riding back and forth on her pony wow wow yes so ben told me that um in the 60s and 70s that he would frequently go down to blue river and camp along the banks hoping that he would get to see eva on her horse at some point now i don't believe that ever happened to ben but um there were a tremendous amount of people from fredericksburg that did claim that they had seen the spirit of Eva. And Laura Martin, you know, told Ben Weathers that she had no doubt in her mind as soon as she saw that Indian girl on she that knew. horse, she knew it was Eva. Right. And she said she rode back and forth along the bank three or four times and then just dissipated into the fog. And that's interesting, too, because that's, that's of a generation of people who went through still very hard times in this county, right? And they're not typically, especially the Martins, they've been here for a very long time. Yes, sir. They're not typically, and they tend to be, a lot of them at least were religious. They were actually, a lot of them went to a lot of the same churches that Thomas Green preached at. But they're not the type of people that are going to make up something. No, I know? wouldn't think so. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was one of the messages that Ben told me before he passed away was that he had no doubt that Laura Martin was telling him the truth. Yeah. She yeah. saw what she saw. Exactly. Yes. See, that makes me wonder, too, you know, uh, not to bring up a, a, a different subject, but you do have to wonder. There had, you know, there were several of those Indian racetracks in Washington County. Yes, sir. And there, ha I bet there are more stories like that. I mean, you have, you had, there has to be the Allen. big one at Henderson Park where right. you can, and you can still see pieces of it. To yes, this day. sir. Um, but it would be, It'd be interesting to know if anybody has, has experienced that in recent years whatsoever. And again, that might speak to whether it was active or passive or, you know, like a replay. Maybe people just stopped talking about it. And they, Well, that's and a good they, question, they, Alan. Or, or um, yeah, I mean, it's a definitely a good question because if this happened in the 1790s and this Laura Martin saw it in the 1940s or 1950s, I mean, you're talking about 150 years of a yeah. residual yeah. appearance of this girl on the banks of the Blue River. And then it just eventually starts to lose energy. But I bet if you and I went over and you told that story, 
when it was about midnight. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> you might be able to drum something. Especially up. if we could find that rock, Alan. Right, right. Do you do you know where the racetrack is? They say now again. This and is you don't what have Ben to give location on here. This is what Ben Weathers told me. When it rains, you can still see the imprint of the racetrack. You can see where it was. Okay. So we'd have to go down there when it was raining, Alan, and and try to figure out where that was. Interesting. Yeah. But he, Ben acted like it was right in the town of Fredericksburg. That would make sense. That would make sense. And that's one of those things where you and I should have just took him out there and been like, hey, show us where yes, this sir, is Yes, sir, we should so, have. Yes, most but, definitely. Cool, man. Is that, is that what you got on that one? Yes, sir. All right, we'll wrap this one up and be back momentarily. Hey, we all know how hard it can be to find good help nowadays, right? So imagine my surprise when an admirer of distillation and the product thereof showed up on the doorstep of Spirits of French Lick looking to intern to work for free for me. And I'm a bit of an asshole, to be honest with you. It surprised me as well. But the guy did such a great job that we got him hired on full time after just a couple of weeks. And he's now working as one of my new still hands at Spirits of French Lick. His name's Justin Whaley, and he's doing something really cool for those who enjoy distillation-related podcasts. He has started a podcast called Still Learning. It's kind of an audio journal where you can follow Justin's journey of learning and discovery about distillation in a professional setting. Check it out at Anchor.com and Spotify, Still Learning Podcast with Justin Whaley. All right, so we're back with the uh, the second segment of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything with my buddy Jeremy Elliott. I hope you guys really appreciated that last story, and Jeremy did a great job telling it. I just got done telling him. I've read that story many times, and Jeremy and I, he sat around the museum talking about things we'd found in history, etc. Him, obviously, more so than me because he's up there in, in the archives digging through, and he also... Yeah, he he, li- he literally lives there. He lives in the uh, the overflow area, as it were. Uh, so he also has family from here. So he is completely like delved deep into all these stories. But that was the first time that I've heard that story from Jeremy, or read the story, etc. And I ever actually got cold chills. So uh, kudos for that, brother. I appreciate it greatly. You got it. So Jeremy's got another cool one coming up, and I believe that it's right in time uh, for Halloween. Uh, I think that one of the names that you're going to hear in here is Voorhees, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, no relationship, presumably, to Jason mm-hmm. Voorhees. Although we do have a Crystal Lake in this county. That's true. So, you know, it's a, it's a potentiality. Okay. Yeah, but all right, man, I'll let you get into Everybody it. Everybody migrated west. <laughs> right, yeah, they took the name with them, and yeah, yes, sir. they made it a thing. Okay, so this story um, is traditionally known around our county as the legend of Dead Man's Hollow. So in 1840, Alan, um, particularly during the time of the presidential election, 
there were three deputy sheriffs that were that rode into Salem, Indiana, early in the morning. They had made a prison a prisoner transfer to the state prison in Jeffersonville, and they came into Salem after they dropped off the prisoner, and stopped at a tavern slash inn for breakfast. Well, whenever they went in there, there were also three Kentuckians in there, and their last name was Hargrave. It's always Kentucky. It's always Kentucky. Always Kentuckians. They always find their way across the river somehow. Well, they're misplaced. <laughs> um, There's a few that can swim. So the, so the Kentuckians came into town to sell cattle, but um, after they had finished their transaction, they were also in the inn having breakfast. Well... It wasn't long before the three Kentuckians and the three Johnson County Sheriff deputies got into discussion about the upcoming presidential election, which was between Martin Van Buren and William Henry Harrison. So you can imagine that the boys from Johnson County, who they were for, they were for, of course, William Henry Harrison. Yeah, it's uh, it's not uh, it's not that uh, that that far removed from from some of the politics nowadays. For right. Sure. Well, um, eventually, after they got done eating, they started ordering up whiskey, and they all started drinking, the Kentuckians and the sheriff's deputies. Um. So the more they got to drinking, Alan, the more the discussion became argumentative. So surely not. Yeah, right. Surely not. Not not with whiskey. Exactly. That's good for solving problems, yep. right? So then the then it turned into a quarrel. Well, there was one deputy whose name was Elias Voorhees. <laughs> now Elias Voorhees was about six feet tall and about two hundred something pounds. Elias stood up at the table and said that he could personally whip any of his Kentucky opponents. Well, the eldest of the Hargrave brothers stood up to engage Deputy Voorhees, and before you know it, all six men were in a full barroom brawl. So, outside of perhaps some of the furniture in the bar... The Kentuckians got the worst of the fight, Alan. And they were they were angry, and after that, they ran out of the tavern, and they went to a justice of the peace and filed assault charges against the Johnson County deputy sheriffs. Well, the justice of the peace took his job pretty seriously, so he went into the tavern and arrested the three Johnson County Sheriff's deputies. And they were supposed to have a sundown trial. So he took them down to the old jail on Water Street, the one that had the dungeon in it. The old log cabin jail. Yes, sir. Well, at some point before the sun went down, Elias Voorhees somehow managed to get out of the jail and got back to his horse you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt real quick just to say that it seems like people got out of that jail an awful damn lot. I'm just I'm just saying. I mean, I know the audience doesn't know the story. It's Salem. <laughs> right. You could, you know, you know what they called the new jail whenever it was first built, don't you, Alan? Do you remember what they called it? I'm not sure. Freedom Hall. <laughs> what's that? Uh, what's up? Uh, because the- there was like six or eight different 
escapes probably within the first year. What was that line in George Napier's song, Washington County's Best? You can kill a man and get away with it if you got the money, honey, they don't give a shit. <laughs> I can't comment on that. Fair enough. Okay, so Deputy Voorhees got on his horse and took off. Took off into the night. Um, the three Kentuckians, when it came time for the trial and there were only two deputies there, the three Kentuckians were enraged and felt that they had they had been done dirty. So they started offering up a cash bounty to anybody that would go out and find Deputy Voorhees and recapture him and bring him back to Salem for the trial. So there were four local guys, and I do know their names, and since this happened in 1840, it's probably okay if I tell you. Um, the four local guys that went after Deputy Voorhees were Jeremiah Dennis, Isaac Gordon, Mike Atkinson, and John Goodwin. Well, they disappeared off after Deputy Voorhees, and they didn't return until a day later. So they were gone all that night and all the next day and on into the next night and didn't return until the next morning. When they came back into town, they had told everybody that they could find no trace of Deputy Voorhees, nor could they find any gossip about which direction he might have went in. So Deputy Voorhees essentially had just disappeared. Well, the following morning on November the 6th, in the pre-dawn hours, there were two young boys out along Cox Ferry Road that were hunting cattle. They were trying to hunt, bring their cattle back home. When they made a horrendous discovery, these two boys come running into town screaming bloody murder because they had found the decapitated body of a man underneath of a tree and and just right close by his head was on a pike i mean i guess if you're <laughs> if you're going to murder somebody and send the message about uh let's just let's just say it was for for politics sake sure <laughs> right nothing makes a statement just quite like not just killing him. Head on a pike. But let's cut his head off and put it on a damn pike, right? With no regard to who was going to find it, right? Obviously. Yes. And maybe, obviously, the moors of the time were a little different than they are now. But those poor kids, you know what well, I mean? Me makes, it reminds me of something me and my son always say. What would Vlad the Impaler do? <laughs> right, right. When you're out of options. Yes. When you're out of options. And, what would and... Vlad do? <laughs> yes, that's, that's great. So people came, people came running. Whenever these kids came into Salem screaming bloody murder, all kinds of people poured out to Cox Ferry Road to see what was going on. Well, of course, they found this head on a pike. I started to say, I'm sure that everybody, they just left it there. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, we clean right. it up later, but everybody's got to right. see this. Nobody's going to believe it until they see it. So, it didn't take them very long to identify that the body and the and the head belonged to Elias Voorhees from Johnson County. Um, the suspicion immediately turned to those four boys who had chased who had chased after him and come back to town and claimed they didn't see him. Um. 
so they the law the Salem law enforcement the county sheriff went out and apprehended these four boys and brought them into prison now there was a pretty tense environment in Salem at that time and they were pretty scared that there was going to be a lynch mob so they transferred these boys down to Harrison County and that's where they ended up having the trial was down in Harrison County when the proceedings took place down in Corden um, the case was was pretty hotly contested and there were a lot of incriminating facts that made it look really bad for these four local boys however because of the change of venue there was a lot of um, evidence that the prosecution was unable to present and several of the witnesses that had first seen the body weren't actually able to travel to court and to participate in the trial so the jury ended up acquitting those four boys but the testimony that was given in the courtroom gave everyone the impression that Goodwin and Dennis had committed the murder while Atkinson and Gordon were accessories to the fact and were cognizant of the truth of the matter. So yeah, they the other two knew what was up and they just didn't participate. They just yeah, they weren't exactly. also gonna gonna turn their buddy in for uh putting a head on a pike. So it's been claimed ever since that time, Alan, that the hollow, just a few miles northwest of Salem City Limits on Coxbury Road, has been haunted by the spirit of Deputy Voorhees. And that's how it garnered the nickname Dead Man's Holler. Through the years, there have been all kinds of people, particularly again, Alan, like um, around the turn of the century, we have a lot of stories of people reporting that they saw a headless apparition walking along the road out on Cox Ferry Road. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna interject again here, and I'm gonna say that Cox Ferry Road is creepy enough as it is, Jeremy. That like I don't want to drive down it at night, anyways. And uh, I, I never, I guess I never heard like anybody actually like seeing anything out there like that. Uh, but I will now be avoiding it under <laughs> under all pretenses at night. Well, one of the stories that'll get you, Alan, is that there were several people that cl- not not only claimed that they saw a headless apparition. But some of the people claimed that they saw a headless, headless apparition holding his head out in front of him like a lantern. Yeah, nope. Nope. Not happening. Not, not, nope. Nope. You want to do a ghost walk out there? What do you think? We should. <laughs> we should. We definitely should. Yeah, I won't be there, but you could. I'm just saying. I'll promote it for you. But I've heard that, now that you say that, Alan, you know, I've heard that, um, that area, that Dead Men's Hollow out there, will give you some sense of foreboding, even in the daylight. You know, uh, so we we mentioned in the the earlier you know the earlier recording that we did that there's there's, or actually it was before we even started recording, we were talking about Henderson Park, and I told you that that was like one of the one places in the county that yes, gives me that's eerie. a weird feeling. I don't know if if necessarily Cox Ferry Road itself. I can't think of anything immediately that comes to mind. But Rush Creek Valley, in particular, to me, and maybe it's just because it's that kind of middle of the county. There's there's really no one really lives out there. Very few people. No. 
But that place has always, to me, come off a little... And even going up into Walnut Ridge. Yes, sir. Walnut Ridge, to me, is a little... There's a little foreboding yes, sort of feeling to it. Yeah. So, I can't argue um, with that. I yeah. Know. It's it's just an odd place. I think place. you're right about both places. So, you also mentioned the... Uh, you know, they, they went ahead and had the trial and everything to avoid, uh, obviously, a lynching. Um, and I'd say that that was probably the right choice at the right time, considering that you're not too far off from what became the Jackson County Vigilance Committee. Yes, the that's true. The Reno Brothers. Yeah. Uh, all just 20 years the, away from that, really. Yeah, all the stuff with the Heffrons, et cetera. By the time yes, you, get, you get into the time period you're talking about, things are sort of starting to kind of come to a head a little bit, headed towards, obviously, the Civil War, et cetera. Right. And I think that tensions started to get a little tight between everybody, it seems right. like. So, right. Um, and it almost seems like, in some ways, just like, don't bother to clean up the crime scene, call everybody in. It almost feels like people kind of wanted that to some degree, too. You know what I mean? They were, and obviously their, the, their lives were, many of them were fulfilled and they had plenty to focus on, but maybe it's a weird sense of entertainment. I well, I can tell you, Alan, you know, one of the very first things after I, after I had found this story at the Historical Society um, and I really did a deep dive investigating it, I wanted to know what happened to those four boys yeah so i've dug and dug alan and as near as i can figure all four of them moved away from this area i in in pretty short order yeah in pretty short order there was one that was still here in the 1850 census but by 1860 he was gone so they all left they all left the area where they went i do not know probably west most likely because these were men that were just in their early 20s now Elias Voorhees when he was killed was I think 36 years of age and he had unfortunately had two kids at home and a wife um before he was decapitated yeah that's that's a that's it's it's a pretty traumatic thing just in general yes sir I I mean even even the bystanders of course saw the body and all that stuff I mean that's a you know, people have our time even just being EMTs and all that stuff and showing up and seeing seeing things, you know, car accidents, whatever. But uh, the general public usually isn't privy to seeing those sort of things. Yes, sir. So, uh, so when I was investigating this story, Alan, I I ran across um, some sort of a Voorhees family genealogy website. And I start scrolling through it just on the off chance that I right. might see Elias Voorhees. And literally... There was a date line, a timeline on there, and it said 1840, Elias Voorhees murdered and beheaded in Salem, Indiana. What a great tourist attraction. Yes, sir. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, that's another great one, and, I, and, and I'd known that one, too. But, again, you, you've, you've told that one extremely well here, for sure, and I think that it's one that people will, will definitely appreciate, Jeremy. So... We're going to take another break real quick and throw another couple commercials in, and uh, we'll be back, and we've got um, at least one more historical story for you guys. Bourbon, scotch, cognac, gin, any type of spirit that you get a chance to taste transports you to a new and very 
interesting universe. Hi, I'm Jack Pigadou. On the street, I'm known as a hood sommelier. And what I do is I love to taste new spirit and educate people on how to appreciate each spirit that they put their nose or their taste bud into. Follow me on this journey and help me guide you on appreciating every spirit that you touch. Remember, the truth is bearer proof. See you next time. All right, so uh, back with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything with my guest, Jeremy Elliott. And uh, you may have heard earlier in the episode that Jeremy does a walking tour kind of of the Salem Square uh, called the Murder and Mayhem Tour, and it's really cool. So last year they had, uh, you guys actually did like chalk body outlines. Yes, sir, we did. Which was which was neat because... I had to get permission from the chief of police to do that. Well, you know, what's funny is I didn't know that you guys were doing it because you didn't message me until like a day or so before it happened. Or maybe it was the day... Yeah, it was the day before it happened when you, you guys had literally just done all the sidewalk stuff. Yes, sir. So me and dad are driving around the square in Salem and I'm like, what the fuck is... What is all this over here, right? <laughs> but uh, it's literally a tour of the Salem Square and it talks about some of the more... Um, scandalous things that happened on the Salem Square, including, obviously, murders. And there is right. a character who figures into two of those stories, correct? Yes. Uh, so this, I'm going to let Jeremy talk a little bit more about the Murder and Mayhem uh, uh, tour and then tell you this crazy story that he's got. Yeah, so, so literally, the Murder and Mayhem tour is exactly what it sounds like. Um, you know, the Salem Square has been there since 1814, so it has over 200 years of history, and um, there's been a lot, a lot that's happened around the Salem Public Square. Um, one of the more popular stories last year on the tour was the story of a man named Delos Heffron. Now, Delos Heffron was a Civil War veteran. He was, a, again, Alan, another big guy, um, over six feet tall, somewhere around 300 pounds. A uh, real big guy and um, had kind of a mean streak. Well, he fell in love with this Godfrey girl at the same time that this Johnson man fell in love with the Godfrey girl. So they were in some sort of a, a rivalry between who was going to end up courting and marrying this Godfrey girl. The and, love triangle going yes, on. Yes, sir. There, a little yeah. old fashioned love triangle. Um, now, this would have happened just shortly after the Civil War, and I'm not exactly positive of the date, but I think it was 1868. Um, the Johnson family actually owned a tavern on the square, on the north, northwest corner of the square. And um, that's where we, where we tell one of the stories about Delos Heffron. Now, Delos Heffron was a pretty well-connected guy. Um, he had an uncle named Cyrus Dunham who was uh, well known all over the state for being a prominent lawyer. And um, his brother Horace Heffron, who I won't get into because that's a whole nother story, 
But um, you know, Google will... treason in Indiana, and you'll find the answers. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Um, Horace was a state senator from from Washington County for a long time. But at any rate, um, Delos and this Johnson man were in a competition for this Godfrey girl. And eventually, the Godfrey girl decided that she was going to marry the Johnson man. Well, Delos wasn't very happy. Because this, this was the woman that Delos was in love with. So one night, Delos, armed with two revolvers, kicked in the doors of the Johnson saloon and started shooting. Now he hit one of the Johnson men and then clipped a nut. There were three Johnson men in the bar at the time, a father and two sons. And it was one of the sons that had married the Godfrey girl. He got, he clipped both of the, or he shot both of the Godfrey boys and the Godfrey father shot him in the leg and that's when Delos decided to leave the bar. However, when he did leave the bar, um, the Johnson boy that had married the Godfrey girl was laying dead in the floor. Now, his uncle, Cyrus Dunham, was immediately appointed as his lawyer or was, or he, he took on the case of being his lawyer and he managed to get Delos acquitted of that, of that crime. I'm just ma- imagining like Hoss from Bonanza. Like, yes. Just drunk. You know what I mean? That's Kicking a good the door down. That's a good visual. <laughs> Dan Walker just popped right up in there for some reason. <laughs> so, shockingly, about six months after Delos Heffern gets off of killing the Johnson man, he marries Johnson's widow, the Godfrey girl. Of course, because why? Why wouldn't he? This is this is the alternate ending of uh, Karate Kid Three. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's a good point, Alan. So a couple years go by, um, and Delos buys his own tavern on South Main Street, and he's running the tavern, and he's still married to the Godfrey girl, and um, he gets into some sort of a heated argument with a patron of his bar and the patron gets up and wants to fight Delos right there in the tavern well Delos doesn't want to mess up his tavern so he tells this guy that if he wants to fight to meet him out in the street well the DeHalstead man the the man he got into the argument with immediately runs out the door runs across the street gets in the ditch and starts picking up rocks well, Delos comes out the front doors of the tavern, and this DeHalstead guy starts winging rocks at him. Well, Delos Heffron pulled out his pistols and started shooting. But each time, they're missing each other. The DeHalstead guy's throwing rocks, and he's missing, and Delos Heffron's shooting his pistols, and he's missing. Eventually, the DeHalstead guy runs out of rocks and starts running down South Main Street towards the courthouse. Well, Delos Heffron takes out after him, still shooting. He eventually catches up to him about um, a half block before you get to the courthouse and shoots him and gets him, hits him in the back. Then he runs up to him, 
turns him over and starts pistol whipping the hell out of him <laughs> right in the middle of the street. So eventually this bloody battered guy is dead in the street and Delos goes back to his tavern and starts drinking. This is this is literally like you telling historical stories of tragedy in Washington County and me just thinking of like pop culture references. Sure. Like this is a million ways to die in the West. Yes, sir. That scene would that happen so fast, right? No one's gonna help this guy. They're right. all just gonna watch him. Yes. Nobody wanted to mess with Delos. So Delos goes back into his bar and starts drinking, and eventually the, the Washington County Sheriff comes in and arrests him. He doesn't put up too much of a fight. Because, you know, he's got Cyrus Dunham, the lawyer, his, as his uncle. So he assumes that he'll get off again. Well, he gets thrown in the old prison down on Water Street. And, um, you know, it doesn't take long, Alan, before the prominent citizens of Salem start talking about how they think Delos is once again going to get away with murder. And at some point, it's decided that that can't be allowed to happen. So in the wee early morning hours, um, there were two deputies that were watching the prisoners in the jail. When suddenly, a hooded mob of around 150 men showed up with sledgehammers and knocked in the door of the jail. Same, same jail, by the way, as the one from the previous story. Same jail. <laughs> so Delos, Delos hears this commotion and he suspects that it's a lynch mob. So Delos runs down into the dungeon of the jail and tries to hide back in the corner. Well, these boys come in through the door. They bound the two deputies and threw them into an empty cell and locked it up and started trying to get Delos to come up out of the dungeon. Well, Delos wasn't coming up out of the dungeon. So one of these guys takes a double barrel shotgun and puts it at the hole of the dungeon and starts shooting. Well, they hit Delos a couple of times before eventually he surrendered and come out. But whenever he got to the top, the very first thing he said was, please kill me now. Yeah, I mean, he... he... He knew he'd... Listen, when when people show up at the jail on horses and hooded, you know, and, and given again the troubles of the time, you know, Jackson County Vigilance Committee and all that stuff, like, yeah, I think that that's the natural reaction. Yes. Like, can we just go ahead and get this over with? Yes. Because whatever comes next is going to end in death, but how long and how protracted right. is that death going to be? Right. So... The vigilantes did not grant him his wish. And they drug Delos Heffron down Water Street and up to the railroad tracks and took him down to the old railroad bridge, put a rope around his neck and threw him over the side. And Delos hanged to death on that railroad tress. And I may, I may be wrong on this, Jeremy, and, and correct me if I am, but it seems like I remember reading at one point in time that that they didn't, the way that I understood it, and, I, and I, maybe I'm misremembering here, and if I am, feel free to tell me, but the way that I remember it was they hung him the slow way, that they would lift him up, they hung him from the ground, mm-hmm. right? They'd get him up to where he'd almost black out, they would drop him, pull him back up. 
That's that may have been left out of the historical record. It could have been. It could have been. I know. I remember reading that somewhere, but I don't remember where it was. So, and it, that could have been too. Well, his know, brother was a historian. That could true. have been Horace Heffron. Horace Heffron writing about his yes. brother and sort of that as Horace did, well yes. camping things up to some degree. Yes. So, uh, but that's a pretty horrifying death if that's the case. Yes. And um, you know, I I'm not. I'm not 100% positive, Alan, but I believe actually the De Halstead man was the third man Delos Heffron had killed. Because I'm pretty sure there was another there was another quarrel that he had with the man where he ended up shooting him and killing him too. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. I knew about the two of them. Um, yeah, I told the two on the murder and mayhem because they both happened right there by the square. Right. Right. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there was a there was. But a, the other one, I think, happened at his house, actually. Okay, gotcha. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned brought him up too for the the murder and mayhem tour because, um, and you're you're working on that with Daniel, right? Yes, sir, with Daniel May. Yep, and Daniel still has the cemetery walk too, and last he does. Year, That's they, this weekend, actually. Yep, yep. we're gonna we're actually gonna walk. go, and I'm gonna try to get Daniel. I'm gonna take the little. Task yeah, there's a recorder. couple of new there's a couple of new characters that I turned Daniel onto. I'm I'm hoping to to get a few of them on tape for sure. Uh, to do something with on the show, but they last year they did Delos Heffron in the Cemetery Walk. So, yes, uh, the Cemetery Walk for those who are listening is uh, at the uh, Crown Hill Cemetery, uh, and Delos is buried there. His brother Horace is buried he sure there. Sure is. Uh, a lot of the bigger names in Washington County history are buried in that particular cemetery, and so the Actors Theater uh, with Daniel Maine they put this thing together with Jeremy's help on the history side of things, where you do a late night walk through the cemetery. And each of, you get to each of the graves, and the characters come out, and they talk about their life, and they're dressed up in period costume, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a really cool event. It's kind of funny though. You think about it, so you have your murder and mayhem thing, you have your um, ghost walk that Daniel Maine's doing, or the cemetery walk that Daniel Maine's doing. Yes, sir. And then you have the Salem Speedway thing. Yes, right? that you're talking about. We're yeah. just slowly starting to like build up all the paranormal, uh, all the paranormal stuff yes, in sir. Washington County. Yes, so. sir. But. Uh, Cool, man. And of course, you know, um, when we were talking about Native Americans earlier, Alan, um, when I was in the military in particular, when I would tell people that I was from Salem, Indiana, people who maybe weren't familiar with history or weren't familiar with with um, the geographic location of it would always ask me, oh, is that where they hung the witches? Right. Yeah. It automatically, it automatically goes to yeah the Salem. But, <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is, is that... Um, during the, the time that the Native Americans were here, um, the prophet, Tecumseh's brother, the prophet, forgot about that. Yes, I know exactly. Actually yes. burned a medicine woman, a Delaware medicine woman, at the forks of Highland Creek and Blue River that he claimed was a witch. Right. Right. Yes. Interesting. So I want, we do have some of that. There is there is a little bit of that here for sure. There's 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 definitely some weirdness. I know some there. witches. Yeah, there's a few of them around. <laughs> All right, we'll be back with you guys momentarily. Little postscript to the uh, the last story that Jeremy just told uh, regarding the Delos Heffron story. Yeah, so whenever we were talking about the Crown Hill Cemetery tour and you were talking about Delos being buried up there, the Johnson man, and I wish I could remember his first name, but the Johnson man that he killed on the square, on the northwest corner of the square is buried there too and literally on his tombstone it says killed by the murderer Delos Heffron 
I'm going to have to go up and get some photos of that and maybe use that as the uh, the cover photo for this podcast for this episode. Because I've never seen that one. He's in so. the old section. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go check it out this week then. All right, so we're back again for the last segment, and uh, we, we saved what I think is the best for last because this is actually Jeremy's lived experience right. uh, one way or the other. Um, but I'll give you kind of a, a general overview, and then Jeremy can go into details. But Jeremy lives in a house that belongs to the Historical Society, correct? Yes, sir. It is right next door to the Historical Society. Um, I think it kind of works as an overflow, basically. It is, yes, sir. Um, the upstairs of my house is used for overflow storage. Right. So you end up with a lot of historic artifacts in your home. I do. Including clothing and various... Uh, yes, sir. I mean, there's like, if I remember right, there was Coffin. like a, a room with radio equipment, like yeah. various vintage yeah, radios. Yeah, a bunch of old radios. Yeah, it's, yes. it's almost as though you're just asking for it, really. Right. <laughs> to some degree. So I, I've heard that before, Alan. Right, yes. And, I mean, you did put a mannequin head in the in window, window facing the street. So, you know, uh, I just keep waiting to get uh, some I of my... I dress her up every year for Halloween. I know. So I keep waiting to get some of my friends up here from out of Kentucky and, and uh, you know, be the designated driver and drive them down the road and be like, what is that? <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> happened yet, but it's coming. It's coming. So, anyways, I'll let you tell us all about your uh, your haunted house okay, over there with so your gently used coffin. <laughs> the house, yes, sir. The house that I live in was built in 1897, and there have been some traumatic things that have happened there over the years. Um, one of the original owners, Effie Mae Cobble Hines, I think was her married name, um, passed away in the front bedroom. There was, sometime in the late 1940s, there was actually a murder on my front sidewalk. Um, a husband and wife were walking up the hill from Smith Cabinet Factory. Giving Jeremy the look, because this is one I didn't know. <laughs> they were walking up the hill, and I think her name was Lucy Allen. But they were walking up the hill from Smith Cabinet Factory, and they got into some sort of a feud possibly over infidelity and the husband pulled out a gun and shot her five times including once in the forehead on the sidewalk right in front of my house holy shit like i mean that's just a little overkill just a little yes sir so yeah all right yeah so what after after he murdered her alan he walked up to the town square and, and went to the pool hall and started shooting pool. I was trying to trying to take a drink of whiskey when Jeremy told me that, and I shouldn't have <laughs> laughed, but I did, and it just about came through my sinuses. So, I mean, you, listen, I guess if you're going to do it, and it's going to be in Washington County, it makes sense to go to the pool hall, and it makes sense to fire five times. I mean, if you can do it, do it right. Right on. So twice in my house's existence, it's been a boarding house. Um, in the 50s, it was a boarding house. I've always been told that there were a lot of old men that worked at the cabinet factory that lived there. And then um, in the 1980s, again, it was a, was a boarding house. 
and unfortunately the lady that ran the boarding house Gladys Hall she had a heart attack and died in my kitchen and that was that was the end of that of that stint of being a boarding house so in the 90s the the historical society bought it and um, there was a lady that lived there before me and of course she passed away <clears throat> not in my house though um, but um, I moved in in 2013 or 14 I'm a little fuzzy on that but at any rate um, like I said before Alan whenever I first went to move into that house it was not in any condition for me to move my things into it so I, I had to clean I had to clean extensively and um, I was staying there for about a week without really having any possessions there um, I brought in a little uh, roll-out mattress and slept on the dining room floor um, immediately there were all kinds of sounds I would hear people walking up and down the stairs I would hear all kinds of people upstairs in the house um, literally when I was sleeping in the dining room floor I would hear people come down the stairs and walk across my dining room and into my living room and it seemed like they just dissipated out the front door so I knew I knew immediately you know that that the house was had some character to it and um, over the years Alan I, I think I've told you um, there have been so many instances that I can't even keep track of all of them I've heard um, a little girl calling for her daddy in a very distressing voice um, there's been several people that claim that they get the sense that there's an old man in my house um, my sister actually told me maybe the first month that I moved in that whenever she pulled up in the back in my back driveway that she saw a little girl in the back window of my house in the upstairs um, one day my mother came to see me and I was next door working at the museum and my mother didn't know this and she came up to the back door and she said she could literally hear me in the upstairs moving furniture around but of course I wasn't there I was next door wow yeah well and you've got all those first of all before I even get into that so and we've, we've already hinted on the coffin thing that you can talk about again momentarily and the cooling board and all that stuff but so I know you have a dog, right? Does a dog ever have any reactions to any of this stuff? My dog has had crazy reactions in in both in both directions, Alan. Um, so one night, probably between eleven and midnight, I was sitting on the couch watching TV, and my dog was laying on the rug in front of me at my feet, and I heard someone start down the stairs. And it was heavy footsteps. It sounded like an adult person. Yeah. My dog jumped up, ran over to the door, all of the hair on his back standing straight up, and was barking ferociously like he wanted to kill whatever was on the other side of that door. Wow. And I kept telling my dog, no, 
I'm not opening that door for you. There's no way that I'm opening that door. Right. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't blame you at all, man. I don't blame so you. So after about ten or fifteen minutes, Alan, he calmed down and laid back down. Right. About a week later, Alan, again, probably between eleven and twelve at night, I'm sitting on the couch, my dog's in front of me on the rug, and I hear little footsteps coming down the stairs. My dog, once again, jumps up, runs over to the door, but this time he squats down to the crack of the door and starts whimpering. Interesting. Like it was a child on the other side and he wanted to play with this child. Now, there's been several incidents in the upstairs of my house, Alan. Um, I have a hallway that literally extends the length of my house and a lot of times if the weather's bad i'll take my dog up there and play fetch with him so he can get a little bit of exercise right when the ball disappears into the front room sometimes he disappears and you know my dog is real good about this back and forth. He he doesn't. Yeah, he stays right with you. There's I've no been, delay. I've been with I mean, you when we've been hiking. And he stuff. grabs the ball. He brings it right back. Yeah. He wants you to throw it again. Right. But there's been several times where he'll disappear in that room, and there's been a couple of times, Alan, where literally I've seen the ball come across across the doorway about five feet high. Oh. Like someone threw it. Wow. And that, so this, and this is upstairs, right? In the upstairs, yes, and that, sir. I may be wrong on this because I'm trying to remember. In the mannequin room. Well, I was going to say, and isn't that also where the clothes and stuff are? Yes. Okay, so. That's for, where all the old clothes and the mannequins are. For me, the mannequins don't bother me because I knew Buster Crockett, right? Yes, sir. Okay. The coffins. Well, they sound creepy and they make for good stories, right? right. Especially the gently used coffin. Right. The cooling board, creepy, yes, without a doubt, especially considering where it was from. Yes, which the county a, asylum. A whole bunch of stories about that place, including people just being buried willy-nilly at that cemetery. Yes, and maybe at some point I might do something there's on that, There's been a too. lot of mistreatment stories about the old asylum. A lot. And there's a lot of there's a lot of graves that, that I can tell you from looking at who's supposed to be buried there. And going and looking in the springtime when the flowers yeah. come up, there's a lot of graves that are not recorded. The thing that freaked me out about your house most of all was the clothes, because oh. that's stuff that people actually wore in their yes, everyday sir. life, yeah. right? And so there's and I, military uniforms. There's yep. there's clothes up there, Alan, that literally go back to the 1830s. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if it's in your house now or if it's in the museum, but for listeners of the show who heard the very first episode about John Bowman. There is a jacket that belonged to John Bowman as well. I think that's still in the upstairs of my house. That that's might have been one who you of the heard coming down the damn yeah, steps. To be, be honest with you, Jeremy. Who knows? I'm just going to say. Who knows? So one time, um, you know, my son lives in Georgia and he comes up a lot and spends time with me. One year, um, right around Christmas time, he came up to spend time with me. We were just sitting down for breakfast. This is probably like ten thirty. My son sleeps in, so probably 10 30 11 o'clock in the morning it might have been christmas eve um but at any rate we're we're just sitting down for breakfast made pancakes we're getting ready to have a big breakfast and we're sitting there eating and 
I heard what sounded like bells coming from the upstairs, the front room in the upstairs. Right. I didn't say anything. I just kept on eating. Heard it again. This time, my son said, okay, Dad, I didn't say anything the first time, but did you not hear those bells? And I'm like, well, I heard something. He said, what was it? I said, I don't really know. There's not any bells in the upstairs of my house, so I have no idea what that was. I said, maybe it's the ghost. Maybe they know it's Christmas. Alan, right. no sooner did I get that phrase out of my mouth than some old woman in my living room downstairs, the next room over from where we're eating, starts humming Silent Night. Wow. Yeah, there you go, man. There's there's the cold chills. That's awesome. I looked over at my son, and he had silver dollar eyes. I guarantee it. He was completely freaked out. And literally, she got through several bars or verses of that song before I finally stood up and walked towards the living room, and it stopped completely. Just completely, yep. Wow. Well, you know what? I'll throw this out there as something interesting. So, not just a silent night, not just a Christmas thing. but And I don't know how into the, the 14, high strangeness, and all that stuff you get into. But the sound of ringing bells in particular. So, if you go back and you look at fairy lore, and you look at poltergeist lore, you look at yes, UFO sir. abductions, etc. Those those more high-pitched sounds, those frequency changes, are associated with all those kind of 14 events. So that makes it even more interesting, especially if there's no bells in your there's house. There's no bells, and not in the upstairs. I have, I have a couple of like the old school bells in my in the downstairs of my house, but there are no bells in the upstairs of yep. my house. Now, again, and she knew you guys were listening. She knew that you were paying attention, and both of you heard it, and then it became a thing. Right, right. Wow. Um, and you know, Alan, I I ride a lot, um, so I'm up all hours of the night sometimes working on stories there was one night that i was working on a story in my i was standing actually at the at the bar in my kitchen and i was working on a computer on my or a story on my laptop Mm -hmm. and i started hearing a pecking sound in my dining room like someone was pecking on wood like on the floor it sounded like someone was pecking on the floor and it kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it and eventually I got irritated and I screamed at this thing to cut it out. It stopped for about three or four minutes and then it started pecking in my living room. <laughs> and it specific. was doing it again. <laughs> so I went into the living room and yelled again, would you please stop whatever you're doing? I'm trying to concentrate on writing. Then the pecking started in the kitchen where I was writing my story. <laughs> so this thing was just, I felt like it was just trying to irritate me. Just trying me. to mess with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another time, Alan, um, me and my son, and this was again at Christmas time. Me and my son, I had just finished decorating the Christmas tree and stuff, and we turned off the lights and had the Christmas tree lights on. And we just sat down and were admiring the tree. And I swear to God, 
it literally sounded like Bigfoot walked up onto my front, stomped up onto my front porch. And I probably was white as a ghost because I thought for sure whatever it was that came up on my porch was going to completely knock the front door Coming off of my door. house. Right. Yes, and my son looked at me and, and said, Dad, there is not a human that could make footsteps like that. Yeah. There's not a human being that could make that heavy of a footstep. And um, I eventually got up the courage and swung open the front door. And nothing. of course, there was nothing. <laughs> so, do you do you find that if you if you interact with them, does it seem to ramp up? And if you ignore them to some degree, does it seem to eventually back off? You know, I've not ever been able to figure any of that out, Alan. The only thing that I can tell you, for whatever reason, if my son or my daughter come to visit, it ramps up. The activity, for whatever reason, the activity in my house starts to amp up and we hear more things and more things happen, more so than when it's just me and my dog there. Yeah, and I Um, I suspect part of that is because you're you're highly attuned to those things anyways, especially being in history. Yes, sir. And being able to assign a story to an object and or to be able to tell people stories. My opinion is that those people probably want your attention that could be true right and when your kids are there and they're paying attention to it and then you have something to feed off of them yeah they're going to interact a yeah little bit more. or or maybe it's just the newness yeah you know that it's not you know maybe the spirits are used to me and the dog but when my kids come right it's a whole new, new thing blood in here We're, yeah. yeah 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 new blood so in that same vein alan this couldn't have happened but maybe two years ago there's something in my house that I refer to as Mr. Clicks. Okay. Have you ever been to a casino? Oh, yeah. You know the big six wheel? Yep. Kind of like the Wheel of Fortune yeah, or the, the, little, the, the uh, Price is Right yes. wheel. Yeah, yeah. There's that flapper that makes that click, 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 yeah, click, yeah, click, yeah. click, click noise. There's something in my house, Alan, that does the same thing. Um, several times when I go to bed at night and I, I usually shut my bedroom door... I can hear this clicking going all through my dining room and my living room. This clicking sound. I have no idea what the hell it could be. It's Hmm. the weirdest thing. Um, So, a couple years ago, my kids had never experienced Mr. Clicks. And I had never really told them about it because I thought it was maybe borderline, maybe too too frightening. right be a bit much yes so a couple years ago my son came up from college for christmas and um i wore i warned him in advance because mr clicks had been very active prior to him arriving so i figured i'd better tell him because i didn't want him to come out of his skin well just so happened and i'm a real sound sleeper alan you could about drive a train through my house and I wouldn't wake up. That's from my years in the military because I slept right next to the flight line. And I had to get used to that. Get used to that noise, Those yeah. jets taking off all the time. So I've, I've stayed that way. I, I can sleep through all kinds of stuff. I'm scared that I could sleep through a tornado. But um, my son told me 
the very next morning this whole story and I was like why didn't you wake me up and he said dad the dog was going crazy I don't I can't imagine why you didn't wake up but what he told me was that he had went to bed and he was laying in bed talking to someone on his phone it's like one or two o'clock in the morning but he's talking to some of his college buddies and he heard little footsteps come running through the dining room the living room and then ran into his room and stopped at the foot of his bed he said that my when my kids are there my dog sleeps with them um because you know he's a traitor (laughs) um so he said that my dog immediately started whimpering like maybe it was a little child again He said no sooner than that happened than he started hearing this clicking sound that I was telling him about. And he said the clicking sound kept coming closer and closer and came into the room and literally got the other little spirit to run out of the room and then the clicking sound chased out after her and my dog got up and ferociously went after Mr. Clicks like he was going to tear that thing apart. Right. So my, I asked my son, what did you do? And he said, Dad, I took the covers and pulled them up over top of my head. <laughs> That's a not today. Not today. Yup, I, I feel them, man. I feel them. But my son had the sense that this clicking thing was tormenting the little spirit. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like for sure. But there's some strangeness in my house, Alan. Absolutely. Hello, listeners of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. You might recognize my voice. I'm Stephanie McNew. I host a podcast called Highly Spirited Podcast, where I give you a cocktail history and a ghost story that pairs with it. I'm a great big fan of what Kim and Alan are doing here with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Be on the lookout for maybe a collaboration between us in October. I cannot wait. And in the meantime, if you want more ghost stories, check me out on Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music. Should be anywhere you find podcasts. New episodes are out every Friday. Hey guys, this is Alan Bishop over at Distillers Talk and the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. Are you interested in learning or expanding upon the ancient art of distilling? Whether it's for spirits, essential oil, or tinctures, our friends over at 13 Stills have you covered. With hand-built copper stills made to last, Jason at 13 Stills has the setups you need to produce high quality product. From two gallons to 200 gallons are ready to roll Prohibition sets, complete with tricloves and thump barrels with fruit ports. Give 13 Stills a call today at 1-502-424-5283. Tell them that Alan Bishop sent you on over.
All right, guys, we're wrapping it up here with uh, Jeremy Elliott, uh, the Washington County historian from the John Hay Center and Stevens Museum, um, Washington County Historical Society. Uh, you guys have too many names. I know, There's you're too right. Many names. And then the it's depot on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a the lot. Railroad Museum. Yeah, right. The John Hay birthplace. All that good stuff. Um, so I figured I would uh, kind of let you wrap this up with where people can find you. We obviously know sure. about the, uh, the Murder and Mayhem Walk coming up. Uh, but you can go into all the rest of it. And I wanted to point out, because there will be several people that follow me from the world of distilling that, you know, they're not from Washington County. They don't know you. Yes, sir. Uh, if they wanted to put a face with a name, you've been involved in a paranormal show in the I past. I have, yes, sir. Ironically, again, tied to a distiller, potentially, or at least the location of an old distillery that was a yeah. preacher distiller. So, yeah. and Fredericksburg on top. Well, yeah. close enough, Hardensburg. Yeah, a few years ago, Alan, um, the travel channel got a hold of me and um i was on a program called the dead files and it was about um skinwalkers down around hardensburg and yeah so there's a there's a segment on there where i'm interviewed in the hardensburg cemetery so um yeah it's out there i mean my kids my kids show it to people all the time so you get to talk about a, a uniquely Indiana phenomenon, which was a two-seed church, which is... Oh, yeah, that's crazy, yeah. <laughs> which is interesting, yeah. for sure. So, uh, anyways, tell people where they can find you at here. So, you can find me Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays at the John Hay Center at, in Salem, Indiana. We're on 307 East Market Street. It's the Brick Street, the only Brick Street in town. But that's where you can find me. All right, man. Well, hopefully we can talk you into actually doing a podcast of your own all about Washington County or Southern Indiana history. And uh, I'll be glad to help you with it any way I can, brother. Appreciate that. All right. Have a good one, guys. Later.